This is Caroline Degatti, editor at clearancejobs.com, and welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Major Scott Husing, retired Marine and author of the book, Echo and Ramadi, The Firsthand Story of U.S. Marines in Iraq's Deadliest City. In his 24 years of service with the Marine Corps, he deployed 10 times, served in over 60 countries. His experiences during and after the military dealing with personal effects of war have prepared him for his role as executive director of Save the Brave, a nonprofit that serves veterans in need. And Scott will also be soon lending his expertise as a contributor to clearance jobs. So we're excited to have him join the team. Major Husing, so glad you could join us today. Hey, great to be on the program. Thanks for having me. For our listeners who may not know, just tell us a little bit about your background, when you joined the Marine Corps, where you served, and what life has looked like since you've left the Corps. A friend of mine introduced me into the Marine recruiters, and you walk into the office, and there's camouflage netting all over the place, <laughs> and they're wearing these sharp uniforms, and they give you this pitch. It sounds very exciting, and it sounds like a really risky endeavor to get into. And I thought, these guys are a perfect fit for me. (laughs) So I enlisted in the Marine Corps, went to boot camp in 1989, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And then Mm -hmm. after several years in the Marines, realized the value of a college education and hung up my rifle for a little while, Mm -hmm. joined the reserves and went to college at Illinois State, did much better and graduated in three years. And so I, I share that story because it's really a testament to what the military and especially the Marine Corps gives young men and women that discipline to focus on what's important to treat things like a mission. And that's what I did with college. And that's why I was so successful in college. And I did go to Illinois State. And I don't like to brag, you know, they only let 50 or 60,000 every year, but I was happy (laughs) just to get into college. So I did very well. And then when I graduated, I was very lucky to have the opportunity to continue to serve. And a young sergeant called me up and said, hey, if you can take a physical and come down and run a physical fitness test, we can get you into officer candidate school in January. And it was kind of fate or luck as it would be. And the rest is history. And after serving as a young lieutenant and captain and major, I ultimately retired at 24 years of service. And it was just a great experience for me. I I never look back and have any regrets on what I did in the Marine Corps, it gave me so much. And when I think about that or get asked what the best thing about the Marine Corps was, it's always the people Mm -hmm. and the caliber of young men and women you serve alongside and that I was privileged to lead as an officer in the infantry. They're just remarkable people that come from so many different segments of our country and are really emblematic of what the best country has to offer to these young men and women who raise their hand, take an oath and serve their country. It's really a privilege to do that. And I think for me, even in my capacity as a writer and public speaker and executive director of of two nonprofits, I'm still connected to those Marines I served with. Um, Mm -hmm. I still feel that I have a responsibility to lead them. Even long after I left the battlefield, long after I left the military, I think that's what's different for some because I still feel that I have that responsibility and I'm very privileged that they still ask me for that when Mm -hmm. I get requests for letters of recommendation to college or Mm -hmm. to the police department or from the families. It's it's something I'm really lucky to still stay very connected to. Would you say that sort of respect and that desire to lead is part of what motivated you to, to write Echo and Ramadi? Absolutely. I wrote the book 
to really honor the sacrifices and spirit of the Marines and soldiers who I fought with and the families that supported us. They're really what made us capable of fighting and surviving and winning on the deadliest streets we've ever fought on in modern urban combat in Ramadi, Iraq, which mm -hmm. statistically, it was the deadliest city in Iraq, if not mm -hmm. the world, based off of the number of casualties that we saw coming out of that city. People will often ask me, like, well, what makes it the deadliest cities? We, we lost a lot of soldiers and, and Marines there, more so than any other city. And it was important for me to share that story of Ramadi because I didn't want that battle to fall under the shadows of other significant battles mm. in Iraq or Afghanistan, like Fallujah or Baghdad or mm -hmm. Sangin or Helmand. It was a very significant battle. And my battalion, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, actually fought in the first battle of Ramadi in 2004. And then 18 months later, there were these highs and lows of fighting. And there were plenty of units that fought in the city throughout that period. And then we came back in 2006, what they refer to as the second battle of Ramadi. When I talked to my peers and others, that fought with other units, both Army and Marine, in that city were really trying to define it as a two-year battle. It, mm -hmm. It's a two-year fight because we went through this ebb and tide of handing it back to the Iraqis and thinking they could handle it, and then it would fall again, and there would be a lack of security and stability. And that's when 2006, President George W. Bush and General David Petraeus said, we have to order the surge strategy. And mm -hmm. We were part of that, and that's what I captured is that 10-month snapshot in Echo and Ramadi. Mm -hmm. But I always say this, too, is although you look at the cover of the book and people use that adage, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. There's this <laughs> badass Marine on the cover, you know, looks like he's kicking a door in. But the book's really not a war story. The book is mm -hmm. really about people and that power of human connection. And the backdrop just happens to be one of the bloodiest cities we, we've ever fought in. And those stories of people and that power of human connection and the stories of leadership and team building and overcoming adversity, that's really what the story is about. And mm -hmm. that's why I was so happy to share it. And I think that sort of feeling and that, that respect for relationships and for the people that you served with, that's a very clear theme throughout the whole book, both in your experience and looking at the leadership of others that you served with. What do you feel makes somebody a successful and effective leader? And what are ways that those leadership skills that you learned or that you experienced in the military, how can those be translated into the civilian world? Well, another adage that often gets thrown around, especially in the for writers, is nothing's new. Hmm. None of my ideas are brand new. I've, <laughs> you know, everything's stolen from somebody else, so to speak. And But they come through those inputs from people that come into your life, the life experience you have, and especially when you've been deployed in combat and seen the worst that humanity has to offer, all of those mm -hmm. small pieces of trauma that you accumulate over multiple deployments in a career, I think they change you. They shape you as a leader. And for me, especially my story, although I think it's others have the same, it's through a different lens. And that's mm -hmm. what makes all these stories so unique is you get the perspective from so many different people. And, and that's what I share through my story when I speak or when I write is this is how it affected me. And this is how I learned as a young officer and even as a young Marine, what good and bad leadership looked like. And it takes years of age wisdom and experience mm. to ultimately figure that out. And you can pick and choose what's good and what's bad. But even the poor examples are things to learn from and how you translate that into 
your private life or your relationships or the corporate sector, those are all applicable. And mm -hmm. I always, probably the thing I'm most quoted for is what I've said for years is that there's no such thing as combat leadership, just leadership. You lead in any condition. And although some people shine a little bit brighter when there's a lot of chaos and friction around on the battlefield, and that's where they really shine, real leaders are capable of managing people in the absence of that friction, mm. in the absence of chaos, in those long periods of boredom and dullness, whether it's on the battlefield or in the boardroom, that's when real leaders will distinguish themselves. That's when the amateurs will be separated from the professionals who understand that you have to listen to your people. Mm -hmm. And I was recently talking to a large group in Nevada, and I reached out to one of their senior level executives. And I said, hey, tell me what happened throughout your career within your field and your industry that you learned about leadership. And he went on to tell me, well, you know, I started doing this in 1978. And then I went through and let's see, it was 1990. And he's doing the math in his mm -hmm. head. And he says, so 24 years, I figured I needed to listen to my people. I said, hold on, let me interrupt. I said, it took you 24 years to figure out you need to listen to your people. And he's been doing this for 35 years mm. in his field. And I thought, man, you know, that was probably me too at some point. So mm -hmm. any of the listeners that are listening to the show, if you, like millennials, people trash millennials all the mm -hmm. time, like the short attention span, they're not capable, they can't just like, if they can crack the code on that and start listening, those who lead them and those that are responsible for at 10 years, they're going to be way ahead of us, uh, <laughs> and, you know, as, as I'm a Gen Xer. So mm -hmm. if they can crack the code on that, I think it's important because listening to those you lead is very important. I think there's other things about my experience specifically is through my writing and through the interview process, writing Echo and Ramadi was I really didn't understand how young these guys were mm. that I was tasking to perform these superhuman acts in the face of grave danger in a world of uncertainty with most certain danger around them, how young they were. Yeah. And they were 19, 20 years old and they didn't have 35 years of life experience like a young captain did. They had 18 years in most cases or 19 years. How they processed that and how they led was much different from what I did because mm -hmm. they didn't have that experience. And it took me a long time to realize that. And it's really a testament to the type of training they got and the type of people they are again to be so successful under those conditions. It was, it's really remarkable to me to think back on and, and still staying so connected to them and sharing that with them. I think they really get a sense of pride on how much they really did accomplish. As I'm reading through, I realized just with the way the dates line up, I was a freshman and sophomore in college when all of this was going on. So these men who are fighting, they're my age while me and my idiot friends are just in the dorms playing video games and <laughs> getting drunk. Just seeing how these young men are able to, to step up to the plate is pretty amazing. But then also the flip side of that is it's all the more tragic when you read about losing these young men. And one of the pretty early on in the book, you talk about losing Corporal Libby, Dustin Libby. And the conversation with his mother, just offering your condolences to her. That's a very intense moment in the book. And we can, you know, the reader can feel just how, how grieved you were, how grieved his mom was. Why did you take that on yourself? What in your experience made you think that this was what was expected of you or what was best of you to do as a leader? Talking specifically about Colin, 
Corporal Libby's mom after mm -hmm. he'd been killed that night in December in 2006. And I just felt it was something that they deserved. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Corporal Libby was one of the most gregarious and well-liked leaders of the entire company. He was one of those Marines that just stuck out. Mm -hmm. uh, he stuck out to me. He stuck out to the other Marines. And there was a real connection and it, it was even more difficult because he was the first Marine that we lost yeah. from the battalion just a week or so into that deployment. It, it, and it really was an eye opener for us on how dangerous and how, how deadly this fight was going to be for us. And to have to make the phone call to the mother of a, of a young Marine that just died moments before who you knew, mm -hmm. who you fought alongside, who stood next to you. And to make that phone call is very difficult, mm -hmm. but it's something I felt that if something happened to one of my family members who was serving, I couldn't get a canned letter of condolence. I, I would mm. want a phone call. And that was important to me. And it was important to write about that. And trust me, if I called, you know, Judd and, and Jenny Libby and Chris, his brother, once, I, I probably called them a hundred times mm. to make sure that it was okay for me to share that part of the story. And it mm -hmm. is, it's the first mm -hmm. chapter of the book because yeah. that's how important it is to really highlight the truest definition of the word sacrifice. And the parents of these young men and women and our gold star families, as I, as I write, there's no other word to describe them other than extraordinary. They're, mm -hmm. they're such remarkable people that can lose so much yet continue to love us so much. And to hear that that night in Ginny's voice as she spoke to me on the phone, it, it, it was humbling to me. And for her to thank me for calling mm -hmm. was even more, it's just tough to get through. And mm -hmm. it, there's, there's no way to gloss over that. And it's important to be authentic and to be unvarnished when you tell these stories to not remind people of the sadness of it, but really the story, if you read in between the lines, is a story of, of brightness too, because these gold star families who lose so much, they continue to carry this torch that shines light, even to this day, to a lot of the Marines who have to deal with those pieces of trauma to get them through their own darkness long after they've left the battlefield. And I mm -hmm. think it's really a story of hope because I do a lot of events with gold star families. I, mm -hmm. I, I talked to all my gold star moms and dads and families, and they don't want to be viewed as these dour moms and dads and, mm -hmm. and shrouded widows and grieving brothers and sisters. They want to be seen as those who survived as well. They understand that we lost brothers and sisters on the battlefield and they lost a son or a daughter. And that grief is very different to understand that and still be connected to that part of our Marine Corps family really sustains us, I think, and helps a lot of the guys. It certainly helps me, and we're always there for any of our Gold Star families. And any Gold Star families who are listening, I always say, you know, we love you guys, and mm. we're always here for you. Yeah, I think that, like you said, you carry these bits of trauma with you, seeing your your brothers lost in combat, often when you're you're very young. That's a unique burden to carry with you for the rest of your life. It is also something that that changes you for the better. Civilians aren't always aren't always aware of how that strengthens veterans, how that gives them sort of a a leg up in the rest of the world. How do you feel that companies, that employers who might be listening, how do companies benefit from from hiring these veterans? There's such an exclusive segment of the American population and those pieces of trauma that they experience really do steal them 
to a large degree. It makes them different. It does make them more resolute in everything they do mm-hmm. because they have such unique perspective. And it comes through being tested on the battlefield and again seeing the worst that humanity has to offer or combat has to offer there's no replication for that type of fear or anxiety or excitement in some cases and sometimes hilarity that happens as all this madness is unfolding and they deal with it because they're prepared physically they're prepared mentally for what they experience. And just so people who don't understand the military, in, in a sense, it's less than one half of 1% of the entire American population that even serve in our military. And then there's the Marine Corps, the smallest branch. And then there's the infantry that I served in alongside the other Marines. And then within the infantry, the people that actually go to combat is even smaller. Mm. And the people in combat who actually squeeze the trigger of the rifle and have to make that one conscious decision, that life-changing decision to mm. take another human life and see some mm. of the things they have to see day in and day out as they fight street to street, house to house, room to room. That's an even smaller percentage. Yeah. So they accumulate all this experience in such a short amount of time. And when they transition to the private sector, I think they are so adaptable. They are so ready to take on anything that comes down the pipe. So employers who are looking to hire veteran service members, whether they did four years or 24 years like I did, they're very unique and they distinguish themselves from the rest of the the applicant pool because of what they've experienced in such a short amount of time. It's remarkable because my guy's in the infantry and everyone thinks, well, you're just charging a machine gun nest or you're marching around with the rifle on your shoulder. No, my guys in that environment that was so dynamic, they would go on any given day from being a a, a trained killer attacking and killing the enemy with unbridled ferocity to uh, would-be insurance claims adjuster handing out money for stuff that was broken by the coalition to policemen to social worker handing candy and school supplies to kids or doing a survey of a building and assessing whether it was safe to be inhabited. The the list is endless. So that's the type of experience that our military service members get. And that's not exclusive to the infantry. I'll I'll tell you that because Mm. I don't care whether you're kicking doors in a Ramadi or turning a wrench on a truck or scraping paint off a ship. Any of the veterans listening, your service mattered. It it, it Mm. is absolutely important that everyone recognizes that their service mattered. And I say that because it's important because a lot of transitioning veterans feel, well, I was just an airplane mechanic and I just did this. I always crush them when I hear that because I never want veterans to downplay the important role in the team. And Mm -hmm. that's what they really bring to any civilian employer is that team mindset. They're absolutely capable of being independent operators, but they're also team players and Mm -hmm. they see that bigger picture. And employers that can offer that to them, that sense of camaraderie of unity through leadership and great programs and great companies that's when you'll really get the buy-in from transitioning veterans that's what they love Mm -hmm. and you will see them shine day Mm -hmm. in and day out yeah building off of that if employers are able to offer that type of team dynamic that type of challenge that will help veterans succeed but like you said, I mean, this is a very hard transition going from if somebody's going from the front lines and they are expected to be a warrior every day, and then they are coming home and are asked to sit at a desk, work as a mechanic. That's a very different 
lifestyle and it's hard to adjust to. How do you feel that family members and and just the general public can be supportive to veterans who have already returned, who are returning and who are trying to transition back into the civilian world? We do a pretty decent job in the military transitioning veterans with job resources, websites like clearancejobs.com. They get vectored in and they stick their name into the HR pool. But I think we still have a long way to go to transition them psychologically Mm. and mentally on what to expect when they make that transition into the private sector. What I always tell veterans who are transitioning, and I love speaking to active duty component service members about transition as well. And I always tell them, be excited about it. Look at it Mm. as a new mission and understand that the rules are going to be different. And it's still a mission. You still have to play by these rules to be successful. And that's important because a lot of people think that by playing by the rules, it makes them a sellout. But that's how you win at the game. You know, Mm -hmm. I use an analogy like Michael Jordan, one of the greatest basketball players ever. And I'm not even a basketball fan, but I'm from Chicago, so I love Jordan. (laughs) You know, in the offseason, Caroline, he was not in the batting cage or golfing. He was shooting free throws Mm -hmm. because he knew that's what he needed to do to be great at that game. Whenever veterans transition, they need to understand whatever it is they want to do. I don't care if they become a cop or a firefighter or a financial planner or they want to bake pies. They have to learn the set of rules that go to that job. Mm. And I say this because I talk about it a lot. We're geared in the military to do this thing, whatever it is, for four years or for 20 years, and we're going to do it. And then these guys transition and they think, well, I got to do this for four years. I signed on with this. I went through the academy. I went through the training program. I have to do this for four years. I have to do this for 20 years. Here's a newsflash. No, you don't. You didn't (laughs) sign a contract. If you don't love what you do, quit, hmm. transition again, move on, do what you love, do what you're passionate about, and you'll be happy. And I, I've done that. And every time you make that transition, every time you exit, you understand that there's something better out there. And the hmm. transition becomes easier each and every time. And ultimately, uh, I was just talking to a great guy who is a veteran. And he says, all of those jobs you have aren't as important as the number of exits you have. Hmm. And he explained it in a way that was really simple is those successful exits, and they don't even all have to be successful. Even the ones that are a little bit rough on the out are useful as you transition into something else, but always envision where are you going to be in five years? Where are you going to be in 10 years? And doing that planning, I think will help guys transition to understand, hey, I don't have to do another thing for 20 years. I can do as I can do 20 things in 20 years and be equally as happy as long as I've accomplished and achieved the goal I set for myself in this endeavor, whether it's opening a restaurant or whether it's being a financial planner, whether it's being a writer or a journalist or a cop. There's so many great opportunities, but you absolutely have to do what you love. And I think that that's important. And we lose sight of that sometimes because of the way veterans are geared and that they don't want to let people down. I think it's a good thing and a bad thing. But if they understand that as they make that transition, just be excited about it. Just be happy that you've got this new mission, this new chapter in your life to look forward to. And I think that'll serve them well. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your work with Save the Brave and whether or not those are the types of lessons or messages that you're trying to convey to the veterans who are coming to Save the Brave for help. So Save the Brave is a certified nonprofit. We're 100% nonprofit. We don't take a single dime 
none of us on the board all goes to help veterans. And our mission is to connect veterans through outreach programs. And we do that because this is what we're good at. And there's no pill or vaccine or prescription that any doctor or the VA can prescribe that's any better than connecting veterans in a safe environment where they can share their stories. And I don't care if it's deep sea fishing on the Channel Islands here in California or going up to Big Bear Mountain or skiing. We get these guys together and women. And that's where they are able to really share. Yeah. And to be a part of that, to help so many hundreds of veterans over the last several years, it's really been something that, again, that makes me happy mm. that at the beginning and the end of every day, that is what makes me happy is helping veterans, whether it's through Save the Brave, which was founded by one of my young Marines who I fought alongside in Ramadi. He was a young machine gunner named Nick Velez. Mm-hmm. He's a successful business owner. He owns two restaurants now affectionately called Bastards American Canteen, <laughs> which is named after our battalion, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, the Magnificent Bastards. You can imagine the Chamber of Commerce when they're like, yeah, I want to open a business and call it Bastards. <laughs> and, uh, but they loved it. You know, the, the towns rallied around it. So he called me and said, hey, sir, you know, we'd love your leadership. If you could be the executive director of Save the Brave. And I said, absolutely, but we're going to do it right. Mm. And through sponsorship and donations and all the great events we've had through the team, we have helped hundreds of veterans. And that's a, there's so many testaments to that when we get emails and letters saying, thank you, this really brought me out of my shell. These people who have experienced these small pieces of trauma throughout their life and are dealing with the effects of post-traumatic stress, there's something if we can reach just that one guy and relight that fuse, see the light in their eyes again, that's what's important. Mm. And I think, again, when you transition, you never think that that type of brotherhood or sisterhood is going to exist as it does when you're on active duty mm. or serving in combat. But I got another news flash for any listeners, especially the veterans or civilians, mm-hmm. that there's so many great organizations out there, nonprofits and, and groups and clubs that help expand your network. And if you allow yourself to be involved with them, I think you understand the network is even bigger. Mm-hmm. And I'm constantly blown away by the amount of support from total strangers who want to donate, put some skin in the game, give up a weekend, come volunteer or the laundry list of, of emails I get from people who have read Equin or Madi and say things like, I never really understood what you guys did until I read your book from total strangers. And then sometimes it's from Marines that will call or write or send an email or hit me up on Facebook and tell me how impactful the story was. Mm-hmm. And to be a part of that through Save the Brave has been remarkable. It's really Amazing. And you don't have to love to fish or, you know, maybe you like to hike or maybe you like to canoe. There's so many great, what I call boutique 501s these days, and they're doing great things. And I do always caution people too. They have to understand what organization they're getting involved with because there are some shady people out there and Mm -hmm. you really have to vet the organization you become a part of. And that's why I always say Save the Brave is 100% nonprofit. Everything mm-hmm. we do is for the vets. And it's been a remarkable experience. And we're, we had a great year last year. We are so fortunate to have sponsors like Stoked on Fishing and Fox West Sports and get these opportunities to highlight the 
real heroes and these men and women who have served and are surviving it all of those things that they went through and all these great success stories again it's what makes me happy and i'm, I'm proud to, to be a part of it right now our opportunities with save the brave pretty exclusive to southern california we are a california-based company okay. but we do have a great network not only of marines that served with our battalion mm -hmm. that live in other states and if anyone's listening and wants to get involved with Save the Brave, they can absolutely go to savethebrave.org, mm -hmm. find out all about that organization. And if they want to set up an event, they can do whatever they want. You know, I've had firefighters do chili cook-offs and they do it for Save the Brave and then they just send us a check and they're like, mm -hmm. we're just happy to support. And I'm just like, that's great. That That's a great, you know, firefighters and chili cook-offs. Like, it doesn't <laughs> get any better than that. I'm like, perfect. Uh, they want to be a part of it. There's so many ways to help. I love, obviously, if people write a big check and say, hey, I love to donate, but it's not always writing a big check, although we love them. Uh, <laughs> it's really giving of yourself, putting some skin in the game. And it's not just a bumper sticker that mm. you say, oh, I support our troops or I support veterans. You have to do. You have to get off your couch on a Saturday morning, get out of bed, skip the second cup of coffee, drive 50 miles, go to an event, sit in a booth take tickets at the door, help set up tents, whatever it is, you have to really put some skin in the game. Mm -hmm. And those are the types of services that really help nonprofits, especially Save the Brave. Or if you're a lawyer or a certified public accountant, to donate your time or your services to a nonprofit are mm -hmm. so important. Because for us who don't take a salary, every dime we raise and every dime we spend for attorneys or public accountants, that cuts into the programs we can provide to support veterans. And we're very fortunate to have those types of people on our team that are willing to donate services and through National Research Center with Dr. Dan Chu, who provides his services. He's the guy with the PhD on the wall that comes out with us on the trips. If we see a guy that's struggling, you know, we say, hey, go talk to Dr. Dan. Because none of us ever profess to have a PhD in the law. You guys already know I went to state, so that didn't happen. But we're yeah, we're really lucky that here's a guy that gives so much of himself to really help our nation's heroes and help our veteran community. It's remarkable. So that's how people can help. But if they want to find out, absolutely go to savethebrave.org and find out a little bit more about it. You can donate online. You can do a recurring donation. But everything helps. And if that's what you're comfortable doing, do that. And at the end of the day, if you don't feel like doing that, you see a veteran, just say thank you. Say thank mm. you for your service. It, it's, it still means a lot and it's, it still goes a long way. Hmm. Last question, building off of that. If you are if you are a civilian who's looking to help a local organization or to reach out to veterans, or if you are a veteran who's, who's struggling and, and just trying to to get to that next stage and to find purpose in their civilian lives, where would you point them to? Well, there's so many resources, Caroline, that, and I never diminish what the VA does, although it's a system that is obviously highlighted in the media a lot for mm -hmm. not being effective. But if you want to get involved in a nonprofit, there's plenty out there. But if they want to get involved with, with Save the Brave, if you're in California or even outside, anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world, and you want to donate and be a part of it, just go to savethebrave.org. Check out the team, check out some of the events we've done, and we continue to grow and continue to provide more programs and more help for more veterans. And if you want to be a part of that, go to savethebrave.org. Another thing I'm really proud of is that a portion of the 
sales of my book, Echo and Ramadi, go to Save the Brave. If you open the back cover of the book, which you can see our logo on the back, proudly displayed, a portion of the proceeds go to help veterans. So maybe you don't want to write a check or maybe you can't donate your services. Well, buy a copy of the book. Go on Amazon, buy a copy of the book, buy buy three copies, buy a couple for <laughs> veterans and give it to them as a gift. And you're helping. It sounds, I don't say that to sound gratuitous, but sometimes people don't understand. It's like by doing that, you may not have even wanted to do it, but you're helping vets because I'm donating a portion of the proceeds to Save the Brave to help vets with PTS. Thank you so much. It's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you and just really interesting to hear about your experiences and your experiences with the people that you served with. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Security Clearance Podcast. Please visit news.clearancejobs.com for more security clearance news, insights, and information. Have a great day.